as people read Revelation today and they read this utter destruction and judgment that's coming upon this world, as they read verse 15, it's like the Lord is saying to them, but you know what? There's still time. There's still time. You can escape what's coming. I sent my son to die for you so that you wouldn't have to be punished with the wicked. Didn't Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 that, you know, we're waiting for his son to come from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. But the Bible also warns, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice calling you to be his child, don't resist because you may not get another chance. James said, our life is but a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. And if a person dies before receiving Christ, no, they may not be here, of course, for the tribulation judgments, but they're going to be standing at the great white throne judgment where they're going to be cast into hell forever. So there's still time, as the Lord is saying, right? There's still time. Don't play games. I know so many people who go to church that are playing games who, by the way they're living, to me, they're not demonstrating that they really know the Lord. The Bible's replete with uh, admonitions and examples of people who are going to church, calling themselves Christians, but living still lives that indicate that they aren't really born again. And Paul said, look, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows or a woman sows, that they're also going to reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to of the flesh reap corruption, condemnation, judgment. If you sow to the Spirit, in other words, if you live for the Lord, you will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. That's why Paul admonished us. He said, look, judge yourself now, and you won't have to be judged by God someday. And Peter said, you know, examine yourself to see that you're really in the faith. Because Paul said, many profess to know God, but in works they deny him. There's a lot of professors in the church today who are not possessors. They profess to know God, but they don't possess eternal life. I know there are people in our church who come and hear the word every week, and I'm convinced they're not saved. That's for any church. And so I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't at least from time to time try to shake you up a little bit. You know, and, and like Vance Habner, the old Baptist preacher used to say, it's, I feel it's my responsibility, my ministry to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> so there's time to escape what's coming. I believe the, our Savior's coming soon. At any moment that trumpet could sound, the voice of the archangel will shout, and we're going to be, boom, instantaneously out of here and standing in the presence of our Lord. And that's going to be incredible, except for the people who are left in the earth who were playing games and who know what has just happened because they've heard of the rapture. And now they're facing the seven-year tribulation period. You don't have to go through that. I'm not sure why. In, the, in, these, in these groups that say, look, um, we sell survival kits, you know, for the tribulation period because we're going through it, you know, and and, and I'm like, you can have it. I mean, you know, enjoy yourselves, okay? Get your little survival, you know, compound going, and 
I don't plan to be here. I believe Jesus has come to take his church out of here. Amen? Revelation 17. Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and chapter 16, verse 19, has already declared the fall of Babylon. But in chapter 17 and 18, John gives us a little closer look at what that means and how that fall looks. Babylon is mentioned 287 times in the scriptures. That's more than any other city except Jerusalem itself. In fact, there are six chapters in the Bible that deal with Babylon, and that's kind of interesting because Babylon is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. And maybe as uh, some homework this week, uh, read these six chapters at one sitting. Give you an idea what Babylon's all about. But the, the two chapters, uh, the six chapters, I should say, two in Isaiah are chapters 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. Revelation 17 and 18 are actually inserted into the chronological flow of the book of Revelation. The chronology picks up in chapter 19. You see, after the pouring out of the seventh bowl in chapter 16, verse 17, what immediately follows chronologically is the return of Christ to establish his kingdom, which we see in chapter 19, verse 11. Chapter 17 and 18 form the last parenthesis in the book. Remember, that's been the pattern. We look at some things that happen. We kind of stop, recap, amplify what's already gone on. We saw that in chapter 7. We saw a big parenthesis, chapters 10 through 14. Now chapters 17 and 18 become the final parenthesis that zeroes in on the fall of Babylon. Give us a closer look. And then, of course, in chapter 19, we pick up the chronology, which is Jesus coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. So in chapter 16, uh, 17 and 18, we have a more detailed look at this final world empire, both the religious and commercial aspects of it. This final world empire that is going to be brought into existence uh, by the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And we're not too far away, I don't believe. And we're going to... Take a closer look at them in these two chapters before we see God destroy them. Chapter 17 gives us a look at the religious aspects of Babylon the Great. And chapter 18 kind of zeroes in on the commercial aspects of this final world empire. It's interesting and important that we understand that false religion has always played a large part in this fallen world. It shouldn't surprise us that it's going to play a major part in the end-time scenario that's going to bring about the one-world government. One author put it this way. He said, the, that ultimate expression of false religion will be an essential element of Antichrist's final world empire in holding together his military, economic, and political structure. Only religion can unite the world in the most compelling way. Politics, economics, even military force are unable to overcome the world's cultural diversity. Only religion, with its appeal to the supernatural, can transcend the physical, geographical, historical, economic, and cultural barriers to world unity, end quote. And I agree with that. The world is just too culturally diverse to come together except for religion, bringing it together. We're going to see that false religion plays a major role 
and the establishment of the final world empire. And uh, it's just the way it has to be. I don't see any other way the world will come together uh, politically and culturally, except somehow religiously they are united. Now let's read the first six verses. That's all as far as we'll get tonight. We'll finish 17 next week, but most of it is uh, background information that you have to know. Okay, it's very important. But let's read the first six verses. John said, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead her name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. As we come to chapter 17, of course, the first thing we're introduced to is a woman riding on a scarlet beast. Who she is? Well, that's been a matter of speculation and debate for centuries. There are 10 clues, though, that come out of the text that might help us identify and determine who she is, or more specifically, what she represents. Let's go through them. First of all, she is called a harlot who led the nations into spiritual fornication or unfaithfulness. Now, many commentators believe this is an important clue because it describes somebody who was unfaithful to God while pretending or presenting themselves as being faithful to God. The idea goes like this. A person can't be unfaithful to somebody unless there's a commitment there in some way, whether they're engaged to that person or married to that person, right? You can't be unfaithful to someone unless there is not a commitment in place. Ray Steadman, uh, author or commentator, said, and I quote, The symbolism of spiritual adultery is not ordinarily used of heathen nations who know not God, but always of people who outwardly carry the name of God while actually worshiping and serving other gods. The concept of spiritual adultery is frequently used in describing the apostasy of Israel, spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 16 and chapters 23, and in all the book of Hosea, end quote. Well, and you don't have to turn to it, but Exodus 34, verses 14 through 16, listen to what God said. He said to his people, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And the idea, of course, is that Israel was the covenant people of God. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, they were called the wife of Jehovah. And any husband has the right to expect his wife, and vice versa, any woman has the right to expect that her husband, because of the commitment that they have entered into in marriage, is to be faithful to them. And God is expecting that very thing. That, look, I've made a covenant with you. I've entered into a commitment with you to be your God and to take care of you and watch over you. I expect you, as my people, to be faithful to me. I wasn't asking so much. But anytime God's people went after other gods, they played the harlot. And that's the idea. They were claiming to be faithful to God when, in fact, they were actually worshiping other gods. Number two... Her influence reaches around the world. Whatever she is, her influence is not local, it's global. Number three, don't confuse the woman with the beast that she rides. She is seated on the beast, which means that she is steering and controlling the beast, much like a rider sitting on a horse would be steering and controlling that animal. Now the beast lets her get away with this, or actually I shouldn't say get away with it, he invites her to do this for a time. But after three and a half years, he turns on her and kills her, destroys her. Uh, we read this in verses 16 and 17 of Revelation 17. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So the love affair ends after three and a half years, obviously. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So the beast, or the Antichrist, tolerates and uses this religious harlot during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period to gain world power. He needs her. Remember we said the only thing that is going to really bring the entire world together is religion. The Antichrist realizes that. He needs this false religious system to help him gain power over the entire world. But when he gains that power, after three and a half years, he turns on this harlot, this false religious world church, and he destroys it because he wants to set up his own religion, whereas we're in he is worshipped as God. Remember what Jesus said, or I should say Paul in 2 Thessalonians, that at one point the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple and stops the sacrifices and oblations to the true and living God and sets up an image in the Holy of Holies and, de and demands to be worshipped as God. So after the first three and a half years, he destroys the world church and establishes himself as God and establishes his own religion, which is where he and his worship as God. But I want you to realize that ecclesiastical or religious Babylon is destroyed at the beginning of the last three and a half years, whereas commercial Babylon is destroyed at the end of the last three and a half years, just prior to Jesus' return. And we'll study that next time in chapter 18 when we get to it. All right, clue number four. This harlot is dressed in purple, scarlet, jewels, and gold. She is unashamedly wealthy, expensively adorned, and outwardly attractive. Number five, she carries in her hand a golden cup. Jeremiah 51, verse 7, 
God said, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Cups were used in the Old Testament in the temple for the worship of God. Of course, a cup was used in the New Testament to establish communion, right? But it wasn't a gold cup. This was rightly pointed out in that last Indiana Jones movie, you know? I mean, you know, at the last part of the movie where they claimed that the cup that Jesus drank from was this beautiful gold with jewels all around it, you know, and that was a mistake because, of course, these were fishermen. These were, uh, were ordinary folks. They couldn't afford those kind of gold. Gold cups were for kings. And Jesus was a king, of course, but he came the first time as a servant. He will come again the second time to rule. But the cup used to institute communion in the upper room on that, uh, that evening before his crucifixion was just a simple cup. This cup in this woman's hand is gold. Now, there are many commentators who associate this cup with the uh, golden chalice used by the priests in the Roman Catholic Mass. This cup, it says here, is filled with abominations, even as we believe that cup is also because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that during the Mass that the bread and the wine are literally transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ and re-sacrificed again for sin. Uh, many in the Catholic Church will tell you, no, we don't believe that. It's a bloodless representation. It, that's just all it is. But there are Catholic sources like the Catholic Encyclopedia and other sources that will tell you that, in fact, it is an offering. It's propitiatory. In fact, as we studied the letter to Thyatira in chapter 2 or 3 of Revelation, when we looked at the seven letters of seven churches, uh, Thyatira, we believe, represents the Roman Catholic Church, and the word Thyatira means continual sacrifice. So it is a continual sacrifice, and yet that's an abomination because Jesus died once for all. We don't need to keep, you know, the writer to the Hebrews says the blood of goats and bulls and lambs, they couldn't take away sin. That's why they had to be offered over and over again. But when Jesus offered himself, he offered himself once for all, ascended back to the Father after he rose from the dead and sat down. His work was finished. Correct? So that means that the Roman Catholic Mass is an abomination because it speaks of a sacrifice that's never really finished. That Jesus didn't finish the work on Calvary's cross and so on. Number six, she has a mystery title. She's called Mystery Babylon. This clue links whoever she is spiritually to the Babylon of Nimrod. We'll talk about that more in a moment in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Number seven, she is not only a harlot, she is the mother of all harlots. This means that she has spiritual offspring that follow her in her spiritual unfaithfulness or idolatry to God. She is not alone. Number eight, she is the persecutor of true believers. And in fact, it says here that she is drunk with their blood. In other words, she hasn't just tasted the blood of God's saints. In other words, a little persecution. She is intoxicated by the blood of God's true saints. In other words, she has slaughtered 
thousands and thousands and no doubt millions of God's true saints. Number nine, she is associated with a city sitting on seven hills or mountains. Many believe that's a reference to the city of Rome, which is built on seven hills. And number 10, the great city that she's linked to, we are told, rules over the kings of the earth. Now, in John's day, that was a no-brainer. Rome had conquered the world. Rome ruled over the kings of the earth, and Rome was built on seven hills. The Vatican to this day is a separate nation, yes, within Rome, but a sovereign nation. And folks, let me just say this, and I don't mean to offend people by being outrageous. I'm just giving you historical facts. No other organization in the world has murdered more true Christians than has the Roman Catholic Church. One pope in one afternoon slaughtered more Christians than all the Roman emperors put together. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.